How's everybody doing? Well, you know what time it is. It's time to get in the book of Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're going to pick up where we left off as usual in chapter 2. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles, we'll, uh, our text this morning is going to be verses 16 through 19 in chapter 2. If you're going to use one of those blue Bibles we provide, it's on page 984. And it's interesting that, uh, yeah, just the, uh, the scripture reading passage, um, even though I know it far in advance, uh, I just usually never really think about the fact that it tends to coincide with either songs that we're singing or the message that's being preached. And as you'll see from the, the title, uh, we are going to be addressing um, the matter of false teaching or the threat of false teachers in the church. And in verses 16 through 19 in particular, this is where Paul in his letter to the Colossians goes into the, the greatest level of detail regarding the false teaching that was circulating in and around the small town of, of Colossae. And so for, for this uh, passage that we're going to work through, just keep in mind the, the real serious threat that false teachers are to the church and that they are rampant and abundant, especially in our day and age, that they come to us not by visiting town after town, but they can come right into your home, through your TV, through websites. Um, many b- books are in circulation that are very popular, have all kinds of heretical teachings, heterodox teachings, things that seem to have some form of godliness, but truly are preaching a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, and leading people into damning error. So for a little context, leading up to this, back in verse 4, Paul made a passing reference to the false teachers. This was his first reference to them. And in that verse, he indicated what their primary tactic was. He wrote in verse 4, I I say this, verse 4, chapter 2, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And that's persuasive speech. Very persuasive speech. Paul wanted them to be equipped against speech that was very appealing, very rational, very intellectual, very persuasive. And then in verse 8, we got a general description of what characterized the teaching of these false teachers. We learned that their teaching was clothed with philosophy and steeped in man-made traditions and primitive religious principles. Paul wrote in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world. And now in verses 16 through 19, we're going to see Paul go into some level of detail regarding the actual contents of the false teaching and the claims of the false teachers. After finishing his instruction to the Colossians concerning the completeness and sufficiency of God's saving work in Christ, if you remember that, uh, a month ago we talked about God's saving work, what he accomplished on behalf of sinners whom he has chosen to graciously save, what he has accomplished in the work of Christ. 
And Paul emphasized that this work is complete and sufficient, this work of Christ on behalf of sinners, this work of salvation. So after finishing this instruction, having explained to the Colossians that because of Christ's redemptive work on their behalf, God had graciously given them spiritual life, made them new from the inside, forgiven all of their sins, and granted them victory over the spiritual forces of evil who sought to hold them captive in their sin. After saying all of this, Paul then said to the Colossians, starting in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So the title of this morning's sermon is Exposing False Spirituality, because that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. He shines the light of truth on the empty deception of the false teachers. He exposes it for what it is. Now, as I've mentioned before, there's much debate and speculation over the exact source and nature of this particular strain of false teaching. But what we can gather from these verses in particular is this, that first of all, the proponents of this teaching were, according to verse 16, if you look there, according to this verse, they were trying to convince Christians in and around Colossae that they needed to supplement their faith in Christ with strict adherence to religious rituals and regulations in order to grow spiritually and to be more godly. You need to add something to that faith of yours. We have some rituals and regulations that, will, that are very spiritual and godly for you to do. And I say that it was in order to grow spiritually and to be more godly, that that was probably the, the promise of the false teachers and their methods, because Paul brings up the matter of spiritual growth in verse 19, if you see that. And then in verse 23, which we'll get to next time, he brings up the matter of godliness, That is, stopping the indulgence of the flesh, one aspect of godliness. Stopping the indulgence of the flesh, exercising wisdom and self-control, which seems to indicate that the false teachers were insisting that adherence to their teachings and to their methods would produce these outcomes for the Christian. Be wise. You'll have power over temptation to sin. You'll have power over sin in your life by these methods. Not doing these things, on the other hand, in their eyes, eyes of the false teachers, meant that one was not a very spiritual or godly Christian, perhaps not even a Christian at all. But Paul comes with truth. He has some comforting and reassuring words for the Colossians, who had been troubled by the criticism and condemnation coming from these false teachers. So, we read in verse 16, 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one pass judgment on you in these matters. First of all, it would be helpful to understand this command and the one we're going to get to in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Both are in the third person. It's always fun when we talk about grammar up here. They're both in the third person. So third person, he, she, they. These commands are not in the second person, to you. Right? So the the command is in the third person. Now, in order to communicate third person commands in English, we add the word let. We add the word let. Unfortunately, this not only makes it seem like the, the command is for those who are being spoken to, or written to, it also makes it seem like the command is dealing with permission when it's not. When Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you, and then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, he's not telling the Colossians, don't you allow anyone to judge you in these matters. Rather, he is saying, I command others not to judge you in these matters. Kind of makes a difference. Another way we could put it in order to capture the third-person command is to add the phrase, the Lord forbids. After all, Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned by him. He has received revelation of Christ. He is giving inspired instruction in the written word. And so we could add the phrase, the Lord forbids, because it isn't just Paul's opinion here. He's representing the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord's apostle. So the command could read this way. It could be worded in this way. The Lord forbids, in verse 16, the Lord forbids anyone from passing judgment on you in questions of food and drink, etc., So this command in the one in verse 18 obviously provided some relief to the Colossians. Relief from the spiritual intimidation and pressure from false teachers. As I mentioned earlier, based on what Paul says in this letter, it seems that the false teachers were insisting that Christians need to strictly adhere to particular religious rituals and regulations in order to grow spiritually and to be more godly. According to them... Those who disagreed with them and did not practice these things were considered to be ignorant and spiritually immature. And based on the word disqualify in verse 18, it seems that they were also declaring that Christians who didn't adhere to these rituals and regulations would maybe miss out on heavenly rewards. Disqualified perhaps even lose their salvation. They were not just being critical. These false teachers were taking it upon themselves to pass judgment on other Christians, other people whose whose faith was in Christ. And remember what Paul said of the church in Colossae. He was rejoicing because of their faith in Christ. They had continued in that faith. That faith was producing righteous works, Love for all the saints. The love of the Spirit was evident in this church. 
And here come these false teachers passing judgment on them, seeking to claim to disqualify them because they didn't conform to their particular strain of teaching. So Paul says, don't let them do that. Or if we word it correctly in that third-person command, I command them not to do that. So what were they being so judgmental about? What exactly are they, were they teaching? Well, Paul basically said it was, it was matters of diet and religious calendar observance. Now let me skip to the second part, the, the terms festival, new moon, and Sabbath undoubtedly refer to Jewish holidays that were prescribed in God's law for the nation of Israel. These are familiar terms. The Jews were commanded to keep these things under the law, under the old covenant, the law for the nation of Israel. Festivals were annual observances. The new moons were monthly observances, and the Sabbath was a weekly observance. And then the matters of food and drink that the false teachers were focusing on then likely had to do with Jewish dietary regulations, which were also prescribed in God's law for the nation of Israel. Matters of food and drink. Now, it doesn't appear that they were telling Christians that they ought to come fully under the law of Moses, like the Judaizers were. Remember those guys? Circumcision party? The Judaizers? I mean, they were saying, you got to become a Jew to be truly justified through faith in Christ. I mean, that's great. Messiah, believe on him, but you got to come a Jew first. You got to get circumcised, come under the law. It doesn't seem that's the case here. It seems that they're appealing to some things of the law, but not necessarily saying you have to come fully under the entire law of Israel. So they weren't doing the same thing the Judaizers were, whom Paul deals with in other letters, and for whom he had much harsher words for. Dogs, mutilators of the flesh, said that they should, if they love circumcision so much, they should just go ahead and emasculate themselves. Much harsher words. They were preaching justification by faith in Christ plus works, a false gospel, a damning gospel. The Judaizers said, you need to get circumcised and come under the law. Basically, you need to become Jewish in order to be justified through faith in Christ. However, from what we can gather from this letter is that these false teachers in and around Colossae were not telling Gentile Christians that they needed to become Jewish, but that they needed to become more spiritual, more devout. And they believed one's spiritual maturity and devotion to God could be and should be measured by one's adherence to external rules and regulations. That's how we measure godliness and spirituality. They're saying that observing some of the ceremonial aspects of God's law for Israel was a means to spiritual growth and a sign of greater devotion to God. So it seems that they just said, hey, this is good stuff. We should keep doing this because we do this, we'll be more devoted to God. We'll show God that we're more devoted and we'll grow even more spiritually. They judged themselves to be greater worshipers of God and called others to follow their teaching and example. However, Paul said these matters are no basis to criticize or judge anyone who is in Christ. 
No basis for judgment. Why? Well, it gives the answer in verse 17. These, all this stuff, these are a shadow of the things to come. But what? The substance belongs to Christ. The ceremonial aspects of God's law for the nation of Israel, they were instructive. They were instructive. On one hand, they served as reminders of God's holy character and his great works on behalf of his people. And on the other hand, these ceremonial aspects of the law, they pointed the Israelites ahead to the good things that God would ultimately bring about through the saving work of his chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ. They pointed them ahead to the coming of the Messiah and the work that God would do through him. And Christ has come. So, for example, the the Passover festival pointed ahead to the sacrificial death of the Christ to atone for the sins of his people. Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain and he is risen. So the true work of atonement is finished once and for all. The Sabbath pointed ahead to the ultimate rest God's people would enter into and Through faith in Christ, we have peace with God and are resting in his grace. We've been given rest from the works of the law, our own efforts, which could never save. We have rest. Paul says that Christ is the reality that the ceremonial aspects of God's law pointed to. He's the reality that they pointed to. Since Christ has come then, those ceremonial aspects of the law have become obsolete. They're no longer, they no longer have a place and purpose in the life of the people of God during this age. They don't have a, a place in the life of the Christian. In and of themselves, they are shadows. But Christ is the substance. So if you have Christ then you have no need for external regulations and ceremonies. You have the real deal, the reality, the substance. You have no need for the pictures, the shadows, the things that pointed to the reality, the greater thing. These things, uh, ceremonies and regulations, they don't cause you to grow spiritually. They do not cause you to grow spiritually. Continuing the grace and knowledge of Christ does. And that's what we're called to do. We are to worship the Father not on the outside with ceremonies and rituals and regulations, but from the heart in spirits and in truth. Those are the worshipers the Father seeks, Jesus said. This is what God desires of us. And through Christ, he has given us a new heart and put his spirit within us, thus equipping us to worship him in this way, from the heart, in spirit, and in truth. So keep in mind, we're not going to be able to come up with, to give you all the examples of all the kind of false teaching that, that is around us, that really just fits the bill here. But keep in mind what is being said of these false teachers and what they're pushing, this false spirituality. And these are qualifiers to help you discern 
what, you know, what might be false teaching, something you're reading or, or some teaching that you're hearing. If it, if it meets any of these qualifications, it's false teaching. It is false spirituality. Now let's look at what Paul goes on to say starting in verse 18. So here he goes. Second, third-person command, right? I command others not to disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without, without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Beginning of verse 19, not holding fast to the head. Now, first, let me share with you a few comments that I read concerning this verse in particular. First one, this verse furnishes the most important evidence about the false teaching. But it is also arguably the most difficult verse in Colossians to interpret. Second comment, this verse has been described as one of the most contested passages in the New Testament, presenting great difficulties in language and content. So I'm going to do my best. I'm very limited in my understanding, but I'm going to take some liberties to try to, to try to get out what I think the big point is. If you have any questions, I mean, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions that would probably be attached to this verse. But, it, you know, if you do have some remaining after service, you can ask Jeremy. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> all right, so, so here's what I believe Paul is getting at in this verse. He does that to me all the time, by the way. I believe, I believe that he was primarily addressing the content of the false teaching in the previous two verses, the content of the teaching, and that he is primarily addressing in these verses, verses 18 and 19, the character of the false teachers. And here's why. The Greek phrase that is translated in the ESV as insisting on, you see that? Insisting on. They were insisting on things. That, that phrase literally is delighting in. Delighting in. And this is how most other translations translate it. Seemingly all the other good translations basically go with delighting in. Translated that way. And I would say that's more literal uh, to the Greek text there. Uh, the NET, for example, New English translation, puts it this way. I think it's a well-worded, let no one who delights in humility and the worship of angels pass judgment on you. That person goes on at great lengths about what he's supposedly seen, but he is puffed up with empty notions by his fleshly mind. Paul is basically saying that this kind of person is in no place to pass judgment on you. This is his description of the false teachers. He's describing them. He's talked about their teaching. Now he's describing them. They are individuals who delight in humility. In the ESV that we read, it says asceticism. But the Greek word literally means humility. It's the word for humility. They delight in humility. And that at first glance seems like a good quality, doesn't it? I mean, are we called to clothe ourselves with humility? 
It seems like a, a good quality, but the context immediately and clearly indicates that this was a false humility, a superficial humility. Paul says that these men were, what does he say? They were puffed up, puffed up, proud. Well, that's the opposite of humility. So they delight in humility. Paul says they're puffed up. And we have seen that they were asserting themselves as spiritual authorities and passing judgment on others. So much for that humility. One could also say that anyone who delights in his own humility is not truly humble. Someone who wants to draw attention to how humble they are, that kind of ends it right there, doesn't it? So their humility appears to have been merely an outward display based on what Paul says of them in verse 23. If you look over at verse 23, and again, we'll get to it in more detail next time. But what did they practice? They practiced severity to the body, most likely through extreme fasting. And this is why the ESV chooses to use the word asceticism. See, it's a, it's a, a choice in the translation because it clearly is a false humility and a humility that was some kind of an external show and because they clearly were treating, dealing with their bodies in a severe way, the most common way to do that is extreme fasting. ESV goes and says they delight in asceticism. Asceticism, which refers to the practice of extreme self-denial for religious purposes. I'm going to deny myself. I'm not even going to eat the next few days because that'll make me more spiritual. So Paul says they also delighted in worship of angels. Literally, in worship of the angels. Now, some take this to mean that they actually worshipped the angels. Which is something strictly forbidden in scripture, is it not? For the angels are created beings. And worship is due to God alone, who is the creator of all things. They're creatures. So some believe that that, that is what's happening some kind of pagan influence in this false teaching. An alternative understanding of this statement is that it refers to the worship that angels perform. So they delight in the the worship that angels perform. Don't we see throughout Scripture accounts of angels worshiping God? Do we see that? These depictions or visions of heaven and the angels singing to God, giving praise to God, glory and honor to him. So we do see accounts of angels worshiping God. We see accounts of their worship. And they should be doing that because they, like us, are creatures worshiping their creator. Now, if you think that this second option that he's referring to the worship angels perform, if you think that it doesn't really sound like a natural way to read this and to understand the statement... Let me give you a similar statement and ask you how you must naturally understand it. All right, just through an example. Because again, I think when we see worship angels, like, oh, worship, yeah, probably pagans or something, or worshiping angels. It's kind of my first thought. But how about this statement? Here it is The worship of the church is to be done in spirit and in truth. Am I talking about worshiping the church or the worship that the church performs? 
All right, so I, I think that's similar here. It's not an unnatural reading of the text to think that Paul's referring to the worship the angels perform. And another consideration for this view is that the word Paul uses is not the one that is normally used for worship in the New Testament. It's a word that, that actually means religion or piety. It appears elsewhere only in the book of Acts, in chapter 26, verse 5. And in the epistle of James, in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, a few occurrences right there, use of this, this one term, that's the only other place it occurs. And in both of these places, it's translated as religion. Religion. So this, this word, this Greek word that's translated worship here, it, it really refers to a system of religious practice or a form of public worship. A form of public worship. So, for instance, when I say the worship at this church is different from the worship down the road from us. I'm not referring to a difference in the object of our worship, but in the form of our worship, how it's done, how we do it here, different than how they do it over there. We're still worshiping the Lord. All right? Form of worship. So I would, I would propose that, that that seems to fit better, actually, with everything that's being said here of these false teachers. And there's other, there's other things, too, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into the other details, but I think those are you know, at least persuasive enough to consider this option. Now, why would the false teachers delight? So we look at the things that they delight in, okay? Why would they delight in extreme self-denial and in a form of worship that they claimed imitated the worship performed by angels? Because obviously they're, they're claiming this. We worship like the angels do. We delight in humility. Can't you see it? I'm a little emaciated right now because I haven't eaten for 10 days. I don't think that's even biologically correct, but Chris knows. He's a doctor. Um, why would they delight in these things? Because it made them super spiritual, guys. That's why. At least it made them feel that way. Especially in comparison to those who were just focused on you know, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and growing in their knowledge of the Lord through the scriptures and to loving and serving one another and to making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's lacking a little something, you know. Maybe if we practice these things and, and worship the you know, there's a little more excitement in, in what they do, right? Seems more spiritual. The false teachers' practices gave them a, a sense of spiritual superiority, which in their eyes put them in a position to be teachers and even judges of others. Paul goes on, like I said, I'm taking liberties. Many different debate about this passage, but I'm thinking this is the best that I can understand it, and I think it makes sense this way. Paul goes on to say that the false teachers would, would go on. They'd go on and on in detail about, vision, in detail about visions, literally about things they had seen. Or perceived. Things they had seen, that's what Lewis says, they'd go on and on in detail about things they had seen or things they had perceived. So, what does that tell us? It tells us they were mystics. They were mystics. They claimed to attain insights into mysteries transcending ordinary Christian knowledge, either by direct revelation from heaven or through some kind of exalted spiritual experience. They had access to superior knowledge, mysteries of God. 
So what's interesting is that mystics believed that intensive fasting spiritually prepared them to receive heavenly revelations. See how this is all kind of fitting together? The way Paul's describing them? They believed that intensive fasting prepared them spiritually to receive heavenly revelations. So why would they delight in it? They were prepping themselves to receive more of these experiences. So this would explain why they delight in asceticism and severity to their own bodies. And perhaps their supposed imitation of the worship performed by the angels was intended to induce visions for them as well. I mean, after all, in Scripture, we do see a lot of times an angel is sent from God to give revelation or a message to reveal the will of God. And so maybe this somehow was in a way to maybe invoke them to come and to give them this revelation, this experience. So the fact that they would go on in detail about the things they supposedly had seen seems to indicate that they were appealing, and here, here I think is the, the big point here, they were appealing to their own personal, private, mystical experiences, not only as evidence of their superior spirituality, but also as authoritative backing to their claims. Don't you know I had a personal, private, subjective, mystical experience? You should listen to me. Did you receive a vision from heaven? I did. I had a a supernatural encounter with an angel or with God, and I I received this insight that must be true and authoritative because I'm choosing to believe that it truly came from a holy angel or from God rather than from a demonic spirit or from my own imagination. I mean, our, our perceptions can deceive us. Can't always trust our senses 100%. We can misinterpret things that we experience. Or it could be the claim that the, maybe something intentional. I did not have a supernatural encounter with an angel or with God, but I'm going to tell others that I did in order that I may be looked up to and listened to. Whatever it was like, whatever the situation was with these men who were bringing false teaching into the church, Paul is drawing attention to the fact that supposed visions are the false teachers' claim to authority. Their private, mystical, subjective experiences, their supposed visions, was their claim to authority. And what does he say? He goes on. The person who claims some level of spiritual authority based on unverifiable, Private subjective experiences is in no position to rule against you in spiritual matters. There's no authority in what they say. That's what Paul says. Paul goes on. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that such a person is puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. By his, literally his, his fleshly mind. The one who draws attention to himself with pretentious displays of religious devotion and with regular appeals to his subjective mystical experiences, Paul says, is puffed up with pride, and this stems from his unspiritual, worldly mind. So those who are claiming to be super spiritual and 
were supposedly having divine encounters and receiving revelation from God, Paul said were actually unspiritual in their thinking. How come? Because they thought they could have a direct channel of communication with God while bypassing his written word, the scriptures, the word of Christ. God's given us his revelations. He's revelation. He's revealed himself. And he's given it in the clearest way possible, written down. And the pursuit was seeking some kind of direct line to experience this higher intimacy with God and communication with God while not paying attention to what he has clearly revealed in his word. So because the false teachers were seeking this, they were, they were not being sanctified by the truth. This is the means of when Jesus said, pray for his disciples to sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So these teachers, they wanted to go around. They wanted, they wanted the fantastical experience, the thrills of mystical experiences. But what that means is they bypassed the means of their sanctification. They weren't being sanctified by the truth. They weren't being transformed by the renewal of their minds. They were not growing in the true knowledge of God. Behold your God, right? Do that study. He has revealed himself in the scriptures. This is how we come to know him more and more. These teachers were depending, these false teachers, they were depending on themselves and their own religious performance and relentless pursuit of mystical experiences for spiritual growth. And this, Paul says in verse 19, indicates that they were not holding fast to the head, to Christ. They had asserted themselves as spiritual authorities in the church, yet they were turning away from the one who has true and ultimate authority over the church, and that is Christ. And again, you you turn away from the scriptures, you are turning away from Christ. This is the word of Christ. One commentator kind of sums up what Paul says in in this verse, or 18 through the first part of 19. For all their lofty pretension, for all the delight which they take in self-abasement and angel worship, for all their boasting of the special insight which they have received into divine reality, they are simply inflated by the pride of their own unspiritual minds, having lost contact with him who is the true head and fount of life and knowledge. What did Paul say earlier in Colossians? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul continues on in verse 19 to say that Christ is the one from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Christ is the head of the church. Is, he's not only the one who has ultimate authority over the body, but also is the one from whom the members of the body experience 
true spiritual growth from God. We, we, we grow, our growth comes from Christ. He is the source of true spiritual growth from God. Jesus gave this picture to his disciples. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever remains in me, holds fast to me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. One commentator says, we... Like the Colossians, must not be intimidated by those who would make something other than knowing Christ through his word a requirement for spiritual maturity. Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. And finally, notice that Paul speaks of spiritual growth in verse 19, not in terms of Individual achievement. He speaks of it on a corporate level. True spiritual growth involves the entire church. Which is, yes, made up of individuals. But individuals who are joined together. United together by the Spirit of God in love. In order that they may be used as sanctifying influences and instruments of grace in one another's lives. So there's, there's, there's no spiritual elitism in the church. One body, many parts, knitted together by the Spirit of God with a role and a purpose for the mutual building up of the body of Christ. Instruments in the Redeemer's hands. There is no individualism, rogue Christians, me and my own spirituality, me and my own walk with Jesus on my own. Christianity is communal. We belong to the body of Christ. There's one body and there is one head. The head is Christ. True spirituality is understanding this. True spirituality is understanding that your own personal, individual, spiritual growth includes your involvement in the spiritual growth of others in the church. Your personal, individual, spiritual growth necessarily includes your involvement in the spiritual growth of others in the church. The true Christian life is not lived out in isolation, it's lived out in community with a personal commitment to and involvement in the fellowship of a local church. That is Christianity. One commentator puts it this way, Paul here is drawing a contrast between the divine growth of the whole body and the individual growth of the Colossian false teachers. They drew attention to themselves, did they not? In fact, theirs is not a growth at all. It is a vain puffing up by their fleshly minds. The believer cannot grow to perfection 
full maturity alone. So, I want to read a passage in, in a parallel letter, what's considered a parallel letter from Paul. His letter to the Ephesians, very similar to Colossians. So, he does talk about this, what spiritual growth looks like. And again, when we, we mentioned it's not just individuals in isolation, it is the communal corporate body of Christ growing together, knit together, spiritually growing with one another, united in love, united by faith in Christ, with Christ as the head. And, and here's what true spiritual growth looks like. So we've seen how it was presented, right, with the false teachers. And Paul exposes that and says this is false spirituality, false wisdom, it's superficial, it's shadows, it's empty, it's just hot air. These men are puffed up. They're not truly built up. Here's what true spiritual growth looks like. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or the shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. And real quick, those offices, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teachers, apostle and prophets at the beginning, laying the foundation of the church with the completion of the written word of God, the word of Christ being completed through them. This laid the foundation and then continuing on through the generations in the centuries, the office of evangelists and pastor teachers continuing on to be those who would teach the word of God. So notice what they all have in common, though. They are all ministers of the word of God. They all minister the word of God. So Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints with the word of God for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's Christianity. That is true spirituality. That's true spiritual growth. Why don't we close with that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to all be here and to sit under your word, to hear it read and proclaimed and the fact that we can all have, possess it, have it in our possession, Lord, to, to read it, to meditate on it, to study it, that we might behold you through it and come to know you more and more, and that it can work its sanctifying influence in our lives, that, that you can continually, by it, conform us more and more into the likeness of your Son, 
Lord Jesus, our head, our authority, our Lord, our Savior, we give thanks to you for redeeming us, for calling out us, us out of darkness and, and giving us citizenship in your coming kingdom. Thank you for giving us understanding. Thank you for, through your work, giving us a new heart and pouring out the Spirit of God into us that we might know the truth, that we might be saved and continue, continually be sanctified in the truth, that we may live lives that actually are pleasing to you and give glory to you. And we pray that you would use all of us as your instruments of mercy and grace in the lives of others, that we would be faithful representatives on your behalf to proclaim you, to proclaim the gospel, but also that we would be instruments in your hands for the building up of one another. Help us to remain anchored in this reality that spiritual growth is communal. It involves us in your church, which you are building. Give us a bigger vision for, for what, what spiritual growth is. Give us a bigger vision of the significance and importance of the church and our involvement in local fellowship of the church. We pray for your protection over this church. Help us to continually grow in powers of discernment that we might not be deceived or led astray by false doctrine. May we be students of your word that we might be armed and equipped in the truth and that we might focus on the things that really matter. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, our sanctification, winning the lost for Christ, and growing in righteousness and godliness for your glory. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. We give praise and glory and honor to you. Amen.